From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. I had never heard the name Father Clarence Rivers before meeting today's guests, and I've been Catholic my whole life. Father Rivers was a renowned composer and liturgist, among many other things, and he was helping people better understand and better see themselves in the liturgy long before the Second Vatican Council made such actions the norm. Father Rivers was also the first black priest ordained in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and his own heritage and lived experience greatly informed his approach to the liturgy and to his own priestly ministry. But Father Rivers is slowly being lost to the relentless march of time. His legacy is interwoven in so much of how we understand Catholic liturgy today, and yet his name is far from our lips. Fortunately, for people like me, our guests today, Emily Strand and Eric Stiles, host their own podcast, and it's called Meet Father Rivers. Emily has taught religion at the collegiate level for more than 15 years, and currently does so at Mount Carmel College in Ohio. She is the author of two books on Catholicism, and has published several essays on religious and literary themes in popular culture in peer-reviewed publications. Emily is also a lifelong church musician, serving her parish as a cantor, accompanist, and an ensemble director, and serving the National Association of Pastoral Musicians as chair of the Forum on Communication. You'll get to hear a little bit of Emily's musical talents on this episode today. Eric Stiles has served as the rector of Carroll Hall, an intentional undergraduate residential community at the University of Notre Dame since 2016. He holds degrees from the University of Cincinnati and Loyola University, Chicago. Eric worked as a parish liturgy coordinator at St. Benedict the African Catholic Church in Chicago and as a house manager for the Theater School of DePaul University. He spent some time discerning the call to religious life with the Society of Jesus, though eventually discovered that was not where God was inviting him to be. Eric remains active in the performing arts as a collaborator with Afro House, a Baltimore-based music-driven performance art ensemble. He writes about theology, liturgy, and contemporary culture. Both of our guests are passionate about the liturgy, deeply inspired by the legacy of Father Rivers, and determined to help form the imagination of people of faith today. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes and find their podcast, Meet Father Rivers, wherever podcasts can be found. Welcome, Emily Strand, Eric Stiles to AMDG. We're so glad you guys are with us today. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Yeah, we're here to talk about um, Father Clarence Rivers and and both the man and, and what we can learn about his legacy. Um, and I'm excited to uh, to hear your reflections and to learn about the man and his legacy because I know very little. Um, but but from uh, your writings and, and, and your, your podcasts, I've um, there, there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be explored. So why don't we start um, by just having each of you um, introduce us to this this um, perhaps less well-known character uh, than we want him to be, right? Thank you. Great. So uh, I, I can start. Father Rivers uh, is a priest, was a priest of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. He was the first ordained f- black priest ordained for the Archdiocese and who stayed in the Archdiocese in the 50s. Uh, and um, and came through at a time, really a kind of a, an opportune time. I think that you really have to ask 
who you're asking. So when, when you say that you, you, you don't recognize his name, folks our age and younger wouldn't. But many people older than us, I'm in my 40s, uh, and would recognize his name because they would recognize his music, especially a song called God is Love. And he sang that song in 1964 in St. Louis, I think in April, uh, at the first mass, the first public mass in English, uh, at the, you know, shortly after the first constitution on the sacred liturgy was promulgated in, in the Vatican during Vatican, Second Vatican Council. Uh, and uh, there was, this is the first public mass in English in the United States. And he sang God is Love as a communion song. And it was revolutionary. Uh, it used uh, in English, of course, uh, and uh, black sacred music, particularly the spirituals and the blues. Uh, it was simple. Um, it, uh, it was scriptural. It, all of the references were scriptural, um, slight interpretations of scripture. And, uh, and it was a hit. I mean, it was a hit. Uh, and... He was asked to come back and sing the song again and again, and he talks about that in, his, in, in some of his writings, and that changed his life because he had been writing before that, but uh, in the parish uh, for the community, for a Black Catholic community that he was the so associate pastor of, in obviously in the early '60s, uh, he was a school teacher. He was a high school teacher. He taught English. He and, and drama, and he brought all of those artistic skills to bear on his work as a priest. Uh, and he discovered that he had something to say, especially as an artist priest. And so he began to write more and more, and it had an impact on the American church early on. One of the reasons that, and we'll talk about this in more greater detail, I think that he is obscure be, is because one because his his work kind of fell out of favor his his music and kind of disappeared and there are some interesting reasons why we don't exactly have the the exact story but we have some sense of what that what happened um, and folks kind of moved on right uh, and so he had a real big impact again on the Black Catholic community during the late sixties and early seventies and into the eighties he was there shortly after the founding of the National Black Clergy Caucus. He was not at the meeting, I don't think, which was in 68 after Dr. King's death. But he was uh, asked to be the first director of culture for a newly formed National Office of Black Catholics. And, and, and that was a culmination, that office, the National Office of Black Catholics was a culmination of the work of Black Catholics trying to step into um, into this moment where there are there is the Second Vatican Council going on virtually the same time as the Civil Rights Movement, and Black Catholics were not. It was an opportunity, but they just they you know they were slow, they, they, having a hard time stepping into it. And Dr. King's assassination and his martyrdom provided the you know the grist for them to make the choice, and it started with the clergy caucus, went on to the Sisters Conference um, and the Seminarians Association. And just a movement of concern about Black identity being a part of being Catholic, especially in the liturgy and in the way that they expressed themselves, the way that they looked. And so Father Rivers was already kind of primed to help them do that. Um, and he became a liturgist. He really was a liturgist in this truest sense. Uh, he studied liturgy. He studied drama. 
uh, and um, and continue to make a contribution both in writing and in music uh, in co composition. So that's my quick version of who he was. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm looking to jump in. Yeah, that, that's quick for Eric. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> Doing the I mean, best I can. I'm a church musician, so a, a lot of church musicians, especially of a certain age, do know who Father Rivers is. Um, some need a little reminding because, like several august composers who whose work date from just before the Second Vatican Council to just after it in the years following, he was one of these first composers who was composing music for an English language liturgy. And so like Hoybers is another one. Jeleno is another one. Um, you know, there are several whose music still lives in our hymnals, whose songs we still sing today. I, I, you know, I love the song, I receive the living God and my heart is full of joy. But that song's really old. <laughs> it's like from Vatican II era. And we still sing that song today. But unfortunately, we don't sing Father Rivers music today. And as Eric alluded to, partly that's because he sort of seized control um, and wanted autonomy over his own publishing um, because of partly because of a fear of exploitation and the reality of exploitation. Um, but that is unfortunately also created a situation in which his music is no longer available today. So so that's why some church musicians really do know. Michael Jonkis, you know, we talked to him on our podcast. He he knew he was a, Father Rivers was a great inspiration to him, but he's fallen out of use. And so he's fallen out of um, the consciousness of of many working church musicians today, too. We sang I, I Received the Living God just this Sunday, just uh, <laughs> just song. yesterday. So uh, in, in in my residence hall. So yeah, so it's it, it, those, those songs are alive. And, and the reality is, most people wouldn't know most of those musicians. They wouldn't know their names, mm -hmm. but they would be singing their music, right? You know, like it, we wouldn't expect. You know, probably a lot of your listeners know the St. Louis Jesuits, but a lot of would wouldn't know their names, but they would know the songs. Mm -hmm. And so the the challenge for us is that. His memory would be normally kept alive primarily for the average parish parishioner via music, and then maybe in the in the academy via his writings. Um, and he was, I want to say, he was our first lit black Catholic liturgical theologian. Okay, mm. um, he did complete a doctorate. He studied at the Institute Catholique. Uh, for a period of time before that, he did a, completed a doctorate at, at a school in Cincinnati uh, where he combined because he just didn't feel, you know, like he could easily combine his interests uh, at the schools that were offering. He studied theater at Catholic University of America. Um, of course, he got a, a, has a master's degree, I think, in, 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 in theology as a, as a priest. So he wrote a couple of books, one called The Spirit and one called, excuse me, one called uh, soulful worship, the first one, and then a second one called the Spirit in Worship, and I'm pretty sure that the Spirit in Worship is is a rehashing of his doctoral dissertation. So those books represent the first foray into a Black Catholic liturgical theology, uh, and a, a liturgical theology that you could also say is American, right? So uh, that his principles apply not only to the black community, specifically to the black community, but he really believed, and, and I think Emily and I, Emily and I strongly believe uh, that those principles apply to liturgy among, especially in, in a multicultural uh, 
um, American church. Really, uh, and our hope yeah. is that that's any church. You know that, right? Right. That that's um, uh, uh, received uh, through the podcast, and, and and interest is 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 developed that people will go back and study, and learn yeah. from him. The challenge is it's hard to find his books. Can you give a sense? Um, uh, what kind of liturgical um, aspects or insights uh, specifically you, you both are thinking of or, or that you think are, again, uh, most foundational uh, to, to his work? Because even I'm thinking, you know, as you give these examples of, of music, you know, I go to I go to church, I hear a song, I, I know the song I like, I could sing a few, you know, uh, notes poorly, um, but I never know who, who wrote it or composed it or, or any of that. Um, and I bet the same thing is going to happen in you know with with liturgical uh, you know parts of the mass and things. So can you give us a sense just just to, you know of of what of what his contribution in that area is? Yeah, I can I can Emily? start us off. Um, you can see it from his earliest days as an associate pastor. Um, his he was in a mixed race parish, and his pastor, his his older white pastor, said to him. Can you get these people a little bit more excited about being here? And this is these are in the days in the decade right before Vatican II, and so they're they're coming to mass and they're not really they're checking a box, you know they're they're there to, to fulfill their obligations. And the pastor was like, "Can you get them more excited?" So he got out there and he just started teaching them what it all means. So I think one of the first principles that he advocated was to thoroughly understand and be formed by the ritual itself, what it means, even in Latin, you should be saying your responses in an expressive way. Like you actually are, are believe this stuff, you know? And even if you don't feel it right in that moment, that that performance, that believing performance will carry you through because if it's true, if it's part of what is really an authentic expression of yourself. So that was that was a big principle. Another one I would say you can see from what he did, which is that he, um, in this effort to get his people to participate with more enthusiasm and more conviction, he composed music out of his own folk idiom, which was both Gregorian chant, because he'd been raised as a as a altar boy, you know, and and black sacred song. So when his song God is Love comes out, it sounds like a mix of both. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And the verses are very improvised, but they, they've got these blue notes that just make you kind of feel the rhythm of what he's putting down. And the melody is just so gorgeous that it's it's American classical music. It's jazz. You know, it's it's a, a really, really interesting thing. So people had not really pulled on folk idioms for liturgical music at that point. Um, and he was challenged to think about it that way. And he did it and he did it successfully. And then all of these other folk musicians, uh, people who preferred folk music, because folk music was really popular in the 1950s and 60s, the Kingston Trio and, you know, um, all these these groups singing these really protest songs um, and folk songs and story songs. This music was really popular. And so people sort of glommed onto what Father Rivers was doing and said, hey, that which is popular in the in this folk way can be appropriate for liturgy. Um, and this is a notion that people are are still arguing about today. You know, it's like uh, 
Father Rivers always said, he, he had this way of saying, and he said this to me more than once, he said, nothing that's human doesn't belong in the liturgy. Now, he said that, but he meant di- human in a dignified way. For him, humanity was dignified. So you don't, you know, you can take that quote to an extreme and say, well, we can bring our trash cans in here because they're very human. You know, it's like, no, it's a dignified expression of humanity. No dignified expression of humanity is foreign to the liturgy or should be withheld from the liturgy. And so that's a principle that he advocated. But that also meant that the liturgy should be an expression of our truest humanity. Um, And so he thought it should be entertaining. He thought there were two options. It could either be entertaining or it could be boring. So there's nothing in between. So people say, oh, it shouldn't be entertaining. You shouldn't try to entertain people in the classroom or in in liturgy. No, he said, if you don't entertain them, they will leave. And I think we're experiencing some of the fruits of that, you know, in in this day and age. So does that answer your question in terms of the kinds of principles that were at work in what he did? Yeah. And how they still resonate. I mean, one of them, Eric touched on. He 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 was a he was a drama teacher. He studied drama, and he felt that drama had a central place in liturgy, not the the bad saccharine drama of poor acting, because that's like you know it's not convicted, right? But the conviction that comes through from, from for a master actor, you know, is what convinces you, the viewer, that they really are that are that character. And so Father Rivers thought that drama was an essential skill um, for anybody with a a role in the liturgy, whether it's preaching, singing, lecturing, Um, any movement should be done with, with a dramatic conviction, you know? And so these are, these are principles that we're still arguing about whether or not they're, (laughs) they're okay. And I kind of wish we'd stop arguing and just try to implement them and see what happened. (laughs) You know, I'm a fan. (laughs) But we see how his legacy is still playing out today, right? And the, right. the importance of it. Right. Eric, you uh, go for it. You had a thought there? Yeah, actually, she, uh, Emily, as, as I should have expected, was going to pull right around to the things that I was going to add to the, to the conversation. But I want to place a couple of emphasis uh, on those two things she just said. One, liturgy being dramatic uh, and or a, dr- a form of drama and two, enjoyable, entertaining, etc. Right. So when so one of the things I think we run into is we say, well, this is not a performance. This is a liturgy. It's not a performance, you know. Uh, and he really, really, um, he he really went after that uh, because he understood what all great performing artists understand is that the most, the best art is the truest art, right? So, so a performing artist, you know, Emily and I have both backgrounds in performing art, and that's why we were attracted to him. The performing artist is trying to get at the truth, trying to move towards the truth as best she or he can. And so that's what's happening between uh, three or four jazz musicians as they're trying to figure out. They have skill. You know, improvisation just doesn't happen. It it actually happens only when they, they have a shared language that they're engaging in together, which requires a lot of skill. Then they can move towards talking to one another back and forth in different ways. And that's what we experience as improvisation. So Father Rivers is saying things like good drama, all theater actually has its root in religious ritual. It's all started in religion. Good drama has a beginning and a middle and an end. And so the liturgist and the musicians and the artists, the the liturgical practitioners, have a responsibility 
to be aware and craft and move the liturgy towards a place where it you and I as participants can enter in with a sense of the beginning and middle and end. That that catharsis that we're hoping for over time through liturgy happens when we experience that again and again and again. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about drama structurally. And he as came out as a time, came out as a, you know, as a musician, as a liturgist, at a time when when there was a lot of push and pull about what the liturgy was going to do uh, and how it was going to do it. And so he proposed ways in which to do that. The second thing would be about it being enjoyable. You know, things that aren't enjoyable, we stop doing. It's just simple as that. We just stop doing them. And so entertaining is not a bad thing, he would say, right? And so that's the kind of stuff um, uh, he would qualify it if he needed to, if he thought he needed to, uh, to help a person understand what he meant. But in the end, he would say, artistry, beauty, is where it's it's where it's at, all right. Uh, and so we've got to be able to do that. And that he believed that the congregation could do it, not just the prof- pro- uh, professionals. The congregation could learn, and wanted to learn ultimately, to to participate in this communal activity we call liturgy, in a way that was in fact beautiful and enjoyable, even with when we're singing Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. We're talking about sin. There's an experience of enjoyment, of engagement, of beauty. Uh, and so that's those are some of the things that he, he might say. And then I, the only thing I would add as we move on to something else would be something that he's pulling from the Black tradition very specifically is the emphasis on the spirit of God, right? This is a theological perspective around that the spirit of God especially as is as experienced in black worship, which has a tendency towards ecstatic worship. Um, uh, ext- ecstatic and extemporaneous worship that is vibrant and direct, right? Um, is and is uh, will be in the, Amer- in the American church, especially a bomb in the Gilead for the rest of the American church that black habits have something special to offer the American church and the gift of negritude, the term that was used at the time, to the whole universal church, that people of African descent had this gift of being fully present, the capacity to be fully present in the moment. Um, as a scholar named Bernice Johnson Regan, I was just, was just listening to a, a lecture that she gave about the idea of being, an, that an, it's an acronym, excuse me, it's an Africanism to be comfortable with allowing everybody in the room to be working at their full power, right? At their full power. That that's not um, something to be feared, but in fact, in some moments, to be encouraged. And that in black worship, that's encouraged that everybody can operate at their full power democratically, Hmm. right? Together at the same time. Uh, and that spiritual reality is a way toward God. Yeah, I like that. 
That I um thank you both. I think we you've painted a really compelling uh, you know picture of, of of who Father Rivers was and and again like what um what he has to offer us today uh you know in the uh, American Catholic Church. Um and I wonder, you know, so I I know you've you've alluded to this a little bit already the the podcast that you both work on um about him and his and his life. Um talk a little, little bit about a like what 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 draws you to him in such a way that you said we need to make a a project to to really encapsulate him um and then what what is it you hope people are going to get from this 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 work this podcast and, and other projects that you you know what what do you hope to instill in other other folks as they're listening to to do maybe emily when it yeah, starts off yeah i'll start um well, Eric alluded to this, but I was drawn to Father Rivers um, because I am an artist as well. And I was especially um, pursuing uh, my art, which was uh, as a performing singer-songwriter when I first met Father Rivers. And I, that was a, really a full-time pursuit for me at the time, um, besides graduate school. <laughs> that was full-time too. I specialize in more than, full, more than one full-time activity at the same time. Um, and... Then Father Rivers, I ended up, you know, as I've said, I ended up writing my master's thesis about him and defending it. Um, and he he died um, the weekend after I defended my master's thesis. And I was like planning on calling him Monday or Tuesday to tell him about the defense and everything and the questions that were asked. And, and then I got this call from Father Paul Marshall at the University of Dayton saying, uh, Father Rivers has died. And I, I couldn't have been more shocked. I mean, none of us were expecting his death. He died in his sleep. He died of a heart attack. Um, he had gout. Otherwise, he was in decent health. Um, mm -hmm. But he, uh, you know, I just, I wasn't ready to say goodbye. I wasn't ready to let go of this figure who had been so inspiring to me. I didn't know him. I didn't know who he was. I had to learn everything about who he was and a lot of it from other people too, you know, um, but I, I had re recognized that he was just so full of insight that every time I walked away from a conversation with him, I was just so pumped up about being an artist and contributing what I knew about art and what he was teaching me back to the church. And that was a feeling that just, I remember just sitting in his funeral and looking around the room and thinking, I didn't, all these people were so moved by him and so affected by him. And I don't know any of them. I'm not part of this community. I'm a total outsider to this. And I feel so, it felt, I felt so alone. Um, and so I, I, I've carried that with me for many, many years. And I even, somebody told me, I get, kept hearing about this Eric Stiles person who I should really connect with. And people kept describing him to me. And it was like hearing about descriptions of myself in other contexts. And I was like, this is creeping me out. So I finally got a hold of an email address that I thought was his, but I must have done something wrong with it because he never wrote me back. And now I know for a while I was like, yeah, he probably just ghosted me. But now I know for sure he would have totally written me back <laughs> if he would have gotten my message because we, I just have such a shared love of Father Rivers that he would not have been able to resist, would you? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, not in in the least. We, I mean, this is. I was hearing about Emily, and someone said, "Oh, Emily," and I, I think I tried to maybe contact her on Twitter or something like that. And it didn't work out. And I, there, there was one letter off, Emily. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. There was one letter off mm -hmm. on the email address, and because when she sent me the email, I was like, "Yeah, that's not my email address," you know. So uh, and so we just never. I actually uh, I interviewed for a job that Emily had just left at the University of Dayton. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so, like, wow. I was like trying to catch up with Emily, right? <laughs> Emily and I are almost the same age, right? So yeah. we were born 
10 months apart. You know, like six, six or 10 months apart. So yeah. uh, we were very close in age, but she was a grad student at the time. And I was at the end of, I was at the end of my undergrad when I met Father Rivers. So I, and I met her, met him maybe a year, maybe two or so years before she did. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Emily and I were his, basically, we would like to think, I think, and I'm pretty sure this is true. We were basically his last two mentees. Wow. Uh, and so he had retired. Here's what we, it needs to be said about Father Rivers, that if you listen to the podcast, right, you'll learn, uh, is that he was what I call the tallest short man I've ever met. He had an extraordinary, overflowing personality. Uh, and he uh, was, he was just an extraordinarily generous um, um, and self-aware person that uh, had settled into the idea that he was probably too big for some people, but that was okay. Uh, and um, the, the, my first encounter, uh, and this is the story I tell, I actually come in episode, episode five, four or five. So Emily starts off by herself and she interviews people and then I'm interviewed four or five. We planned it that way. Um, and, and then I tell the story of me meeting or encountering Father Rivers for the first time. I didn't actually meet him that day, but I saw him at a, a, a liturgy at the, at the cathedral in Cincinnati uh, and was just kind of blown away. And the short answer, the 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 punchline of the, the the of the story is, I said to myself, if he can be Catholic, then I can be Catholic. You know, he gave me the freedom just by being himself, um, just by me encountering him, to say, yeah, this I can be the person that I am in this church. Uh, and uh, that was extraordinary. That was freedom, real freedom, right? And um, talk about Ignatian, right? Um, it was it was tactile. It was tactile for me. And so I sh I met him shortly after that. I asked about him. He is the, the African American hymnal. So the lead me, guide me, African American Catholic hymnal, uh, which was a watershed cultural product that was written or compiled by some other folks that we are interviewing, uh, younger uh, folks after him. It is dedicated to Father Rivers. And both of the articles at the beginning, they're excellent articles, um, make reference to Father Rivers directly. And so that's why I, I was looking for this stuff. I was like, this something is interesting about this Black Catholic liturgy. I want to know more. And so it started just simply reading those articles and seeing his name and then finding out he's from Cincinnati, where I happened to be at, in school at the time. And so uh, that, that just, it, it just opened up everything. And so my experience of him by the time I met him in his early 70s was that he was retired, um, that he had had a complicated relationship to the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, that he was kind of like part of the what was what we would call the loyal opposition, you know, um, and that you know he was people were kind of afraid of him because he he just you know he was a wonderfully gracious person, but he took no prisoners, you know, uh, and uh, he was going to do the work regardless, uh, very nicely, but you know he let's say he had a few salty. A few salty uh, adjectives to yeah. use between Some, sometimes uh, nicely uh, in front of his nouns. <laughs> no, yes, not so nicely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's he was just a generous person, you know, um, and he and he had no fear. So you give a man priestly ministry, 
who's very generous and has no fear and nothing to lose or little to lose, man, good things can happen. But it can co- it cost him. Right. Mm. It, it really did. It cost him. It did. And yeah. I had noticed that too, that he was he was kind of obscure or living by himself in this house on Arkenbrecker Avenue in Cincinnati and not saying mass anywhere particularly. In fact, I would try to get him to go out to mass with me and he'd be like, I don't want to be bored. I don't want to be bored because I don't liturgy just wasn't going the way he had always envisioned <laughs> yeah. that he wanted it to go. And, you know, yeah. 17 years after his death, this was all still weighing on me, especially given that increasingly in that time, we have entered more of a an era of rubricism than um, than it was when he was living and working and being creative. And so I had envisioned the podcast for several years just because I've been into podcasting since 2007. I know. It's a long time for podcasting. Um, and I was- Wow, well, before I was, it was cool. Yeah, right. I, I listened to podcasts by uh, Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and by StarQuest Production Network, uh, early, early Catholic podcasters. Um, and uh, But it was, it was, I have to say, what got me off my butt was the death of George Floyd, among others, of course. Um, and- those that feeling of frustration combined with the pandemic um, really inspired me to take the experiences that I had with Father Rivers, which didn't just teach me about liturgy. They taught me about the inherent dignity and genius of all peoples. And I wanted to share them with other people to let them have that same experience that I had, um, and especially white people. So I know we have listeners for our podcast. We have listeners of all colors. Um, but I particularly hope that white listeners will hear these stories and interviews and pay attention in a new way to the perspectives of people of color, because like I said, this one encounter was the most powerful thing that's probably happened to me in my life. Um, and you know, what's funny is that we've had a fortunate byproduct, I think, of doing the podcast, um, because, because along the way, we're not just preserving Father Rivers as a figure of history, but we're also preserving the perspectives and the voices of the people that we interview as our guests, who are many of them themselves really significant figures, although maybe hidden or behind the scenes figures in American Catholic liturgy and history. Um, I think about this every time we do an interview. The the episodes are like monuments to some really great figures. And some of them are well-known, like, like um, Father Mike Jonkis, Cardinal Gregory, etc. And then some are really lesser known, like Dr. Jesse Thomas, who was a student at the school that Father Rivers taught at when he was first a young priest, and she went on to get a her doctorate in preaching, and she teaches deacons how to preach. It's it's amazing. Um, the Purcell students that we interviewed, Purcell High School students that we interviewed, had long, interesting lives, you know, and always drew on their experiences with Father Rivers in their adult lives. Um, others have just these amazing stories and perspectives, and and were really interested in preserving them all, not just Father Rivers, but preserving all these voices in the podcast. I'm really interesting. I, I'm interested to hear your your response. I, um, you know, it sounds like one of the things that obviously Father Rivers was, was passionate about, and it sounds like you both are passionate about as well, is, is how are we making liturgy um, um, engaging, inclusive, um, you know, responsive, and, and um, and, and you know, so that we're we're really engaged in, in the mystery, right? That is, you know, and, and going ever deeper into this experience of God. And um, you know, I imagine it's probably easy for listeners of your podcast and perhaps this one as well um, to to say, oh, okay, like this is a kind of an academic pursuit. Um, you know, I can kind of sit back in my armchair and and, and think about this stuff. But also, there's more to it, right? Like liturgy is 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 something we're we're meant to to do together. And so, what what is it you hope? 
um, folks, or, or what do you advise people um, that are going to go back to you know their own churches? Um, what do you advise them to do uh, to, to to reflect this? Um, you know what what we're what we're learning about Father Rivers, um, you know his his vision, but also um, you know this this sense of, of 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 a liturgy that can that can really bring people deeper into into mystery rather than um, you know make people kind of you know yawn and 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 leave early. Sorry, there was a question in there somewhere. Yeah, so just whatever, yeah. whatever you got, go I, for it. <laughs> I can I can jump in. I I think that um, one would be one of the lessons that he told one of our listeners, one of our guests was. He, he'd been asked for advice. This was when Father Rivers was kind of Catholic famous, right? Like he was doing concerts across the country and young musicians, young people were coming up to him and talking and asking questions. And his, his the student young person um, said something to the effect of, what do I, I want to do this. I want to do this liturgy stuff and how do I do it? And his first, first response was learn and love the mass. So, and he extrapolates that in his writings and says, You've got to understand and and know the tradition really, really well, right? Uh, and so, if you're going to be involved in managing that and in stewarding that and shepherding that in some way, you have to know what you're doing, right? And I think that's something Emily, Emily and I would say very strongly that that's something that he would say that is very important. And and you have to, um, how would I put it? That's when you know when to take a turn, right? So meaning that don't find yourself um, caught in rubricism, right? Uh, folks will recognize the the tired trope of a joke is that nothing worse than a, a, a you can, you know, something like what's the difference between a, a liturgist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a liturgist, you know? You know, no, you can so, negotiate uh, with a terrorist. I always take issue. I'm sorry. You, you can, can negotiate, negotiate with, with a liturgist. I always take issue with that because I said I would say you can you can negotiate with a liturgist if you know what you're asking. You know, like that's the that's the key, right? And and I think that that's really important because a good liturgist is trying trying to shape this folk idiom, this not a folk tradition, which liturgy is, and we forget that that it belongs. It's tied to real people. It's not just a series of rubrics, but it's both. So I have to have read and studied the germ or the general instruction to the Roman Missal, uh, affectionately referred to as the germ. Uh, I have to, to study and listen to the, 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 the documents that come out again and again out of both out of the Vatican or out of the Bishop's Conference. I have to study the history of the liturgy in the classroom with liturgists, or what Father Rivers would call liturgiologists, people who, are, who teach the history and theory of liturgy, so that I have a sense of the, uh, to help me contribute to me understanding the sense of the whole. But the person who does pastoral liturgy day in and day out, week in and week out, is responsible for the whole as it is experienced in this concrete place with these concrete people. In a, in a very concrete cultural context. And so every time we make a choice about the liturgy, we're making those kinds of choices, right? And so uh, it's, it's, it's important, but it's lived. Um, 
it's lived every day in a real way. And I think that's probably the first thing. Um, and, and I happen to think, Eric's opinion about this, is that if we don't get this right, we aren't going to have church. Yeah, you know, It's the place where people meet church, when they go to do church, be church, um, and leave with church in their minds and hearts and bodies. Right. And without that, if we don't do that well, we're, we're in a bad spot. And that's a, I see a good bit of that. I just talked to somebody yesterday at Sorry. my own parish who told me he, we were in PSR together, a, a parish school of religion, and the, they're doing this kind of thing where the parents sit and talk and the kids get an instruction and the parents get to have some fellowship with each other, which is really cool. And he, he said that they had been, they've been going to this parish for longer than I have, which is 11 years. And he said this PSR thing the last couple of weeks has been the first time he's had meaningful interactions with anyone else at the parish, which means... He's been going to the parish, which means he's been showing up for mass every week with his family, and he's not been interacting with anyone but the liturgy, anyone but the liturgy. And if we're not paying attention to that, I mean, and, and I, I just want to highlight everything Eric just said, especially with regard to this idea that this is a series of choices. And it, just because you're making choices with regard to the liturgy does not mean you're some kind of a heretic. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that we're living in this kind of age of rubricism now, which is sort of a a little bit of a swing of the pendulum up up off to the other side, you know. Um, but Father Rivers, you know, one of the things I love about talking about Father Rivers, especially his early work, was that he lived and worked in a time of really wonderful creativity with regard to the liturgy. I mean, meaning in the 1950s and after, really even starting when he was still in seminary before that. And Vatican II created the space for that. And the church was restoring the liturgy to its ancient simplicity restoring that sense of the people's participative ritual surrender um, to the Paschal mystery of Christ. And, you know, we were learning so much about human growth and development, about human flourishing in, in the mid-20th century. And so he got to work amid all of that pastoral and liturgical creativity. And I, I really wish it was something we had more of a spirit of today. Um, today, you try something new and you get written about to your bishop. Um, in fact, you don't even really have to be experimenting. You just have to be picking one of the options from the directives that someone else doesn't prefer for you to get blogged about nastily. It's like, it's so confining. It's so, you know, it, it, there's nothing of that spirit of experimentation to see what works pastorally. You know, what can we can we try a couple different things and see how people respond to it and listen to feedback? And um, yeah, so so, you know, the liturgy itself is very, very progressive. Um, the liturgy is an action. And if we enacted it the way we should, it really would transform us into the body of Christ. Um, and that would transform the world. And that is what Father Rivers was after. Um, and you know, especially in his early days, he was, he, he talks about how naive he was, but it was the naivete in the best sense, you know, because he really did believe that the liturgy could light the world on fire in the very best way. Um, and, and I really wish, I guess, to answer your, your question that was in there somewhere, my answer in there somewhere is <laughs> that I hope that people listen to the podcast and get inspired from talking about this era that we make our own era you know we can we can live our we can go back to this kind of sense of of creativity and that pastoral um pastoral focus in terms of thinking about liturgy in a pastoral sense of 
is this cause, is this helping people to ritually surrender to the Paschal mystery? Is this making us into the body of Christ for the transformation of the world, for the salvation of the world? And if not, what can we do to make it different so that it will, so that it'll come closer to that? And I hope that that, if anything, I hope our podcast inspires people in that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I, I love how both of you just have um have, have woven together, you know, it's just you know, an invitation for people to to love tradition, to to sink into what has come before, um, while also sinking into the lived experience of a certain time and place right now. Um, always with a mindset to how are we bringing all of us, you know, deeper into the mystery of God, um, you know, for the good of all people, right? That, that kind of a uh, little bit of that Jesuit um, uh, AMDG in there. Um, and I think that's just uh, such a nexus of so many um, things that I think sometimes people forget. We can blend all those things together. We can be all those things and, um, and, and you know, get closer to God as a result. Um, I want to take a big swing with my last question here, um, and I, I know uh, you guys know what's coming. Um, I, I, I understand that you are both um, fans of, in some way, science fiction, fantasy, speculative storytelling. So interpret that as you will. I am. Um, and I often think about how um, kind of fantastical stories, you know, Tolkien has already been mentioned here, but, you know, your, your, your Star Wars, your Star Trek, all your, all your others as well. Um, can can connect and just fairy tales in general right? can, can can deepen our understanding or appreciation for the role imagination plays in spirituality. So I wonder if I'll just offer this to you um, if you have any reflections on how those kinds of stories, kind of imaginative storytelling might um, better prime us for uh, or open us up to opportunities in within the liturgy as, as you both have just so beautifully described as this opportunity to to be church and really do church and, and go deeper into mystery so I offer that to you to uh, to do with what you will Emily you want to go first <laughs> I do <laughs> I'm a I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien so here's my Jesuit connection because as a lot of people know um, he was basically raised by Jesuits um, and you know, he said, you know, he's all he's considered obviously the father of modern fantasy literature, which, you know, and and I I tend to I love science fiction. I'm a little new to science fiction, so but I'm I'm a lot more steeped in fantasy and um the distinction distinctions are sometimes razor thin, but um but but Tolkien said fantasy literature functions in four really important ways. The first is what names it? Fantasy, right? It's just unbridled imagination, freedom from the dominance of observable data, right? We know observable data is very important in our society, but it's not everything. It's not everything. There are many things that fall outside of it. And so fantasy literature celebrates that and helps us to just, you know, un, you know, unfetter uh, our imaginations. Um, then he said it, it, it's, has a function of recovery. And, and this is the recovering of kind of a clear sight or even developing a new vision on some aspect of life that you thought you understood, you thought you knew and understood. So best example of this for me is the book Watership Down, right? I used to just see the rabbits in my yard as little pests and things that were destroying my husband's garden. And now I look at them because I, I love the book Watership Down and I look at them and I think I know them. You know, I think they're, I understand something about their private life and, and their religion and their culture. And it's like, I see them with these brand new eyes and I d definitely don't want to set the cat on them anymore. Um, third, he said that fantasy literature allows us to escape and not in a in a negative way like escapist like we're just running away from our problems but he said it's it's to they allow us a way to find a way out of the sufferings of life in a proactive way 
that make you more capable of dealing with those sufferings or even alleviating them. He said, you know, why, why should a person be blamed for finding a way out of prison and escaping? <laughs> you know, it's, that's, a, that's a good thing, right? And finally, he said, they bring us consolation. These fantasy stories bring us consolation. And they sustain us in us the belief that things can work out, that we maybe can be scooped up by giant eagles and taken to safety, you know, when we thought we were going to be doomed. Um, and all of, for all of it, it's the belief in a life after death, you know, that death is not the final word and that there is consolation in a life to come. And it seems like there's a lot of po possible applications to spirituality you know, because Tolkien himself and just like Lewis, they drew on the world of the of the spiritual to inspire their secondary creations, right? Their, the, the fantasy realm was the numinous realm for them. And so in thinking in terms of Tolkien's four uh, functions of fantasy literature, you know, that idea of fantasy helps us imagine new ways to worship God in spirit and truth. It helps us recover an understanding of ourselves as the body of Christ, both for the sake of our own unity, right, which we really need in this very, very divisive culture that we live in, but also for the salvation of the world, to be Christ to the world. Um, his ideas, uh, you know, in terms of liturgy, we could we could escape from this bitter divisiveness of the culture and the liturgy wars that seem to dominate public discourse. We could just take a break from that, right? Just to escape right out of it. And then, of course, the consolation um, is the idea that worship is a balm to the soul. It awakens and enlivens dry bones to a new life. So I definitely think reading such literature and taking in stories like Star Wars and Star Trek and Harry Potter and all these Watership Down and Lord of the Rings and all these wonderful things can really help us have the imaginations that we need to to rise to a new uh, a new mode of life. Okay, Eric, your turn. <laughs> I've had my say. Okay. Uh, 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 great. So uh, this, is, uh, this is fun because uh, Emily and I talk about is almost as much about um, Star Wars and Star Trek as we do about uh, Father Rivers. So uh, the first time we actually have only been in each other's physical presence once with one other person who was, uh, his name is uh, Jonathan Kelso, who is a photographer, a great photographer. And we went to Cincinnati. She's uh, in Columbus. So it was a quick trip for her. And, and I came from, from Notre Dame, uh, Northern Indiana, and uh, spent a, week, a weekend or three or four days interviewing and talking and traveling and taking photographs uh, of Father Rivers related things. And it was great. And we each night, we would at an Airbnb, we would uh, watch Star Trek, you know, and so this was what we shared. Uh, so I, all the yeses to all the things that she has already said about science fiction or and fantasy about their importance, and then another layer of this, right? So for me personally, um, I I'm a former Jesuit scholastic. I was in the society for seven years uh, and trained in Ignatian spirituality. I continue to practice it in my own everyday life, both as a directee as a, and, as, and as a spiritual director. Uh, it comes up in my work all the time as a, as a rector in the residence hall at Notre Dame. And so uh, that's huge, continues to be a significant part of my life. And the connection you really hear is largely to the imagination because Ignatian spirituality relies on the imagination um, heavily to help a person um, discern where God is 
cajoling, operating, inviting them to walk along the journey, to walk along the road. And uh, imagination, the imagination is a faculty, right? It's a, it's a skill that one has to develop, like with all the others, this ability that the human person has. Um, and our own tradition, so for example, uh, Emily is more of a Star Wars fan than I am. I do. I, she's more of a Star Wars fanatic, I'll say, and I'm a Star Wars fan. Right, I'm a I'm a Star Trek fanatic. She's a she is becoming a Star Trek fanatic. I'm very and, and I'm I'm a, I'm responsible largely responsible for that. So I'm great grateful to share that with her. And uh, part of what's going on there is that we are asking the question in science fiction and speculative, speculative fiction: What if? Right, we're exercising the ability to say, "What if this happened?" And we're allowing those what ifs to shape our the range and disposition of our sense of hope. Um, and I think that's 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 that people need that. And one of the things we've talked about is that one of the reasons we see such an interest, quite frankly, in science fiction may be because our religious experiences are not as robust as they might have been before. And I don't think either one of us would say we want to replace science fiction with, with religion again, that they actually should live together in the same person. But when people are looking for stories, they're looking for their, their spiritual and imaginative selves to be actualized in ways that religion largely did uh, in the past for people and can and still does, but uh, it's caught up in some other things that are really challenging and that, that are really, we're really having a hard time with. And I will even say that our tradition, our Christian tradition, is of course a, a historical tradition, but it's also a mythic one, right? Mm. It's a historical tradition that uses um, the mythic realm to communicate the truth. Again, back to that question about, it's not about is it fact or fiction, it's actually about is it true? You know, does it touch the truth, which cannot be contained by our didactic language? You know, even Thomas Aquinas was a, a, reported to have said at the end of his life about all of his work, it's all straw. It's all straw. No matter how hard we try to box God in, God cannot be boxed. God will always be beyond our boxes, no matter what they are. As soon as I speak about God, I've already, I've already closed off a door. And yet we find that we have to keep speaking about God. You know, <laughs> I, I just I have to. Uh, and so the best disposition is to, is to stay open to the possibility that my language is is in fact limited uh, and to let go of the need to be exactly right. Perfect. Yeah. I want to go read. Uh, you've both inspired me to go like reread the Lord of the Rings now. Um, Sweet. Eric, Emily, thank you so much for, uh, for joining AMDG today. Uh, the podcast is meet father rivers available wherever podcasts are to be found. Yep, and I will include a link in the show notes. We, uh, we hope you guys will come back sometime. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. 
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series. Now discern this by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.